Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. So this is a pretty special episode because it is part one of a two-part series with Owen Dunkley. So this episode is part one, and it itself is split into two sections, where in the first half, we set things up with some key concepts in biology relevant to the second half of our discussion on Owen's research specifically. So we discuss what it's like working in a wet lab, a host of experimental techniques like growing human cancer cells and working with cell cultures in a dish, as opposed to living animals. We talk about cancer cell proliferation, Henrietta Lacks's HeLa cells, advancements in cell biology, the three domains of life, the differences between cancer, viruses, bacteria, and other microorganisms, the greatest merger and acquisition in the history of multicellular life. We get into the details of things like mitochondrial transfers, the mechanisms of viral replication, the distinction between DNA, RNA, and proteins, the central dogma of molecular biology, RNA interference, the immune system, the evolution, mutation, mechanism, and devastation of HIV AIDS, retroviruses, they shock and kill versus block and lock strategies for HIV treatment, the power of microRNAs to maximize virus latency, and the Berlin and London patients. We get into all of this in part one. So here we go. As humans change the way we interact with animals in the environment, we're faced with increasingly common spillover events of infectious disease from animal to human. These events have led to human outbreaks of tuberculosis, influenza, Ebola, COVID-19, and HIV AIDS, among others. As there's no way of knowing what the next big outbreak will be, new platforms are needed to quickly develop customizable drugs against infection. My guest today is a second-year master's student in experimental medicine at McGill University and believes he might know the kind of therapy we need. At the Virus Cell Interactions Laboratory of the Lady Davis Institute, Owen Dunkley is currently studying HIV-AIDS, an infection that has caused an estimated 33 million deaths worldwide. Using a combination of computer and lab-based molecular techniques, Owen and his colleagues are developing new therapies to be used in a functional cure for people living with HIV. Outside of the lab, Owen is also an amateur photographer, an avid cyclist, which I can attest to, a sometimes musician, and a once-in-a-while science communicator now, I guess, once-in-a-while plus this exact instance today. So, Owen, without further ado, let's welcome you to the podcast. How's it going? Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. It's been, uh, it's been a couple of months in the making. We've been planning this, so very nice to finally be sitting face-to-face. So, what I'd like to do first and foremost is get a bit of a sense of your academic path. You haven't actually divulged any information about how you got to where you are. So I want to kind of start from the beginning. You can choose what you think your beginning is. And I want you to just kind of run us through how you got to where you are academically. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I may have intentionally avoided (laughs) adding that into my introduction. So I'm a Montreal native, although I was born in Toronto and I spent most of my education in Montreal, so I went to Collège de Montréal for high school uh, with no specific science other than maybe a science fair in my fifth year. And then I went into Dawson College, which is where I met Jeremy uh, on the rowing team. But during my time in Dawson College, I joined an epidemiology research team at St. Mary's Hospital, which is affiliated with the family medicine department at McGill University. So I was working part-time there as a research assistant. And then nearing the end of my time at Dawson College, I also 
went into a small neuroscience internship, which was a fun experience, though very different techniques from what I had experienced before. Then once I went to McGill, I applied to microbiology and immunology, which was my bachelor's degree. So going through my bachelor's degree, I learned a lot of techniques specifically associated with molecular biology and virology, and I gained a specific interest in virology. My first wet lab experience. What's a wet uh, lab, by the way? A, a wet lab is one designed to handle potential spills of wet biohazardous chemicals, which can include cells in culture. So I, when, I, when I work in the lab where I work, I'm working in a wet lab. So it's not like a lab inside of a pool. As no, one no it is not. Okay. No. Uh, <laughs> Although that might be so, fun. <laughs> might be fun. Might be fun. Might be difficult. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so going through my bachelor's, I started off in a dentistry lab working on bone density. Really only learning that techniques, I, I don't feel like I, I much developed any new understandings in the field as a first year undergraduate. But as I moved forwards, I went into a virology lab at the University of Melbourne. I was, I was going on exchange. And then I made way, my way into HIV research through the third year of, or second and third years of my undergraduate and into my master's. So I'm now in my second year of my master's. So you only started the HIV research when you came back to Montreal after your year abroad or semester abroad? So, so at my semester abroad, I was actually working in two different labs. I was working with cells mainly to support other people doing research in mm-hmm. one of the labs, whereas in another lab, I was working on HIV. Okay. So that was, that was a really cursory look into HIV research through molecular techniques. But with that experience, when you came back to Montreal, you were able to get a position in the lab at McGill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by, by happenstance... The researcher that I was hoping to work with in Montreal was good friends with a researcher at the University of Melbourne. So look was, at that. It was good you didn't know that having worked for this researcher in Melbourne. When I first introduced myself to this researcher in Melbourne, no, but it, it just so happened. That's great. It's a nice, uh, relatively seamless academic path. You did dip into neuroscience for a bit there. I'm curious how that factors into how you currently view science or do science. Was that too short to actually have a, a profound impact on you? Because it seems quite different. Well, I, I think um, my, my academic interests are relatively broad and I, uh, it, it does interest me in under, understanding how the techniques are used in different fields, even if I'm not necessarily using those techniques. So with epidemiology, Although I was not designing any, any experiments myself, I was helping out and understanding how these techniques were used. It, this was the same for the bone density lab, as well as my experience in neuroscience. It was, it, it, I felt it was good to learn these techniques, though I felt like I, I still very much enjoyed the idea of a quantitative science like molecular biology. So you keep bringing up this word techniques, which I know to have a specific definition, I guess, outside of maybe virology or biological research. So you're a techniques guy. What do you mean exactly by techniques? Are you talking experimental methods here? Or is there a specific thing that we refer to as a technique? Uh, So yes, this would be an experimental method. So uh, say, for instance, in molecular biology with what I'm doing, I grow cells in cell culture. Um, So cell culture technique maybe uh, you would say and in a petri uh, dish basically you're growing cells in a petri dish yeah so there's a when i'm working with bacteria i grow them on a petri dish and when i'm using bacteria i'm often using them to replicate essentially chromosomes of dna for my experiments in cell culture so with cell culture what i'm doing is using human cells that originated from cancer cells in the past and so we grow human cells in a dish essentially and we can experiment on them using different conditions that we use, maybe different treatments with drugs or different treatments with DNA, so the chromosomes that I'm uh, working on and such. Mm -hmm. Do cells act differently when you're growing them? Like, let's say you're growing a, a baby cancerous tumor in a Petri dish. Does that act differently towards drugs than it would if this was all happening inside of a body? And do we know that? So, so the question you just asked is actually a very important question that every cell biologist should be asking themselves. 
I should just be clear that I'm working with these cancer cells not to study the cancer, but to study the HIV and to study the HIV without actually testing our dangerous virus in humans. So instead, we're looking, uh, we're taking human cells that can grow in a dish, these being cancer cells, and we're looking at what drugs or conditions we could use to slow replication of the virus in these cells. So the hope would then be to test our treatments on HIV, replicating in other cell models. These other cell models, again, often being cancerous because they, we need these to grow indefinitely in dishes, but not because we're studying the cancer. So we could use these other models to be sure that the phenomena that we're looking at with HIV and this drug in the one cancer model isn't special to the cancer model that we're using and special to these cells. The cells that we're using in being cancer cells definitely are a special set of cells uh, that don't necessarily match what you would normally see in a human. There's three so, things. There's sorry? the cancer cells that you're putting the virus into and then you're going to give drugs to it. Cancer Absolutely. drugs. Yes. We're really just trying to study, it, study the virus and we're using these cancer cells as a model for human cells. Beautiful. And so what we'll no normally do is try them in the cancer cells that we're using at first. Then we'll move them into a different type of cancer cell that have different mutations that make them able to replicate in these dishes. And then we'll move them into animal models. Got it. So for the listeners, because this took me a couple of minutes to wrap my head around all this, Owen is not researching cancer, doesn't care right now. I mean, he, you know, we all care about cancer. Of course I care, but you know, it's not but, what I'm researching. But research-wise, it's not his focus. We just happen to be using cancer cells in this case because they're resilient. Mm -hmm. So if uh, I would point anyone who's interested towards the, uh, the book, The Immortal Case of Henrietta Lacks, I think is the book. We can put a link when the episode comes out. Yeah, so, uh, so that details the history of one of the first cancer cell models of human cells that were able to proliferate in dishes that have led to a ton of important cellular developments cellular biology developments, as well as drug developments that all came from taking a cancerous cell that could proliferate in a dish, whereas most human cells would die off after several generations. These cells were able to proliferate, and that's what made them so cancerous in Henrietta Lacks. Um, and so I've used HeLa cells, so HeLa coming from the name Henrietta Lacks, I've used them in my experiments in different labs, and also... Now what I'm using, I'm using HEK293Ts, which are a different type of cancer cell, uh, kidney cancer cells. Hold on a second though. Hila, you said you're using cells from a guy who was like an presumably long dead? Yes, a, a woman who died in the, in the mid 20th century from cancer, from cervical cancer. And, and they took, took yeah. her cells and proliferated them. And then distributed them around the world for people to do research on it. Yeah. And they could do research on virology. They could do re research on tons of different things that are related to human biology because it was the first model. I, th I think the first model of con a constantly proliferating human cell line. But this seems problematic because in science, don't we want to test our theories on many different people, many different kinds of cells? If we're constantly using this HeLa, what if HeLa is special and we can't actually extrapolate our findings to other people or other cells? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you point to a good problem in science. So HeLa cells become a very important or became a very important cell model. But since then, many other cell models have been isolated from patients and can be used to reiterate a finding that you show in the first model. So since HeLa cells have been kept alive and replicating for 70 years past the death of Henrietta Lacks, they come with many mutations and problems of their own. Uh, that you have to control for by replicating your results in other models. Who else besides virologists uses cancerous cells to study the effects of X? Is it basically everybody because cancerous cells have this lovely property of being able to survive many rounds of replication? Yeah, so most cell biology, I would say, is done with cell lines. And more modern cell lines can be generated from patients using specific factors that you now put in. Uh, so the patient no longer needs to have cancer for you to be able to proliferate cells and get them to continuously last. How does that um, work? 
unless it's extremely complicated. <laughs> I feel like we're getting a little bit into the weeds. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, it's just all of this is like so new to me and fascinating. Instead of getting in, into those weeds, we could have a little summary period right now to summarize what we've kind of spoken about so far. So I could, I could do it. You could do it. It's, uh, I would love to hear from you just to kind of encapsulate what we've just covered. Okay. So a lot of biology that's come since, uh, say, the mid-20th century, which has really been the big advancements in science since in 1953, DNA was essentially figured out. In that time, cell biology has really advanced. And one of the really important factors that have led to the advancement of cell biology all the way through virology, looking at different viruses, through cancer research, through essentially any, any disease that you're trying to look at in humans, and also any new drug that you're trying to test in humans. All of those advancements have come on one of the giants, which is being able to culture cells in a dish and work with cells in a dish and work in vivo rather than always having to work in mice or in different living models. You said in vivo, you meant in vitro? My mistake. Okay, perfect. Just want to make sure we're all good. Okay, so we have mentioned virus. We mentioned cancer. We're not really going to focus on cancer very much. It's a different topic for a different day for a different guests, maybe. But you also did mention bacteria. So is there like, what, how would you describe the difference between viruses and bacteria and maybe other microorganisms? Okay, so that's, a, that's an interesting question. So let's start with bacteria. So bacteria are a very simple form of life. They are a single cell. So each individual living organism of a bacteria is a single cell. And within that cell, you have a genome, so a single, uh, a single circular piece of DNA that has all of the genes within the bacteria, and then maybe some smaller bits of DNA, but really it's not separated into chromosomes. And also an important uh, fact about bacteria is that that genome is not separated from the rest of the cell by a nucleus. It's floating um, in there. It's just, it's just floating in there with, uh, with everything else. And so bacteria are important in that they are a simple form of life that can replicate very quickly. So one of their, one of their big advantages is being able to essentially grow anywhere. So you can find bacteria in extremely cold climates, extremely warm climates, and bacteria would be the form of life that humans would look for on other planets. Quick question. Um, I know we say we're going to go to cancer, but can you have, can you have cancerous bacteria? No, we can get into the definition of cancer later. Sure. Okay, just because you said that they, they can grow, they can replicate very easily and almost anywhere, which mm -hmm. makes me think of cancer cells. So, so you can get some pretty serious bacterial infections, tuberculosis being one of the largest killers. Okay. But those, those are designated as infectious diseases. And they're, they're given the name, say, tuberculosis or something else, rather than cancer. Okay. So cancer is human cells, but we'll, we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. um, next, we have archaea, so, which is a smaller group separate from bacteria and se separate from eukarya. You might need to define those for us. Okay, so, uh, so we have bacteria, which is this big group of living organisms that are cellular beings with the genome within the cell, not separated by a nucleus. Then you have archaea, which are a similar form of life that we don't really need to worry about too much right now. There aren't too many human pathogens that are archaea or human diseases that are made by archaea. Didn't we evolve from archaea? Archaea and eukarya are closer linked than they are to bacteria. However, we all have a common ancestor, bacteria, archaea, and eukarya alike. Okay. Um, so th these are just three kinds of cells. So, so these are three domains of life. There are three domains of life, bacteria, archaea, and eukarya. And eukarya are the third domain, and those include humans, plants, and essentially any large thing that you see in life. Humans and plants are in the same domain of life. Yes. That's crazy, because yeah. at the macroscopic level, we definitely make a differentiation between me, you, and trees. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> so, okay, crazy. So, so the domain eukarya, what's special about eukarya is that they have a nucleus. So that's a separation between the 
the area of the cell that has the genome within and the rest of the cell. So there's, there's another layer or boundary that separates the nucleus from the rest of the cell, which is similar in animal cells to the outside of the cell. So there's a barrier on the outside of the cell, and then there's this secondary barrier inside, which is the nucleus. Why did that evolve? Like, what's the benefit of, of having the DNA or the genome packed into its own little enclosed space inside the cell? Um, that's an interesting question. And uh, I would maybe point you towards an evolutionary bi- biologist for that. Okay, um, perfect. I appreciate that you don't <laughs> want to get into it. But yeah, it, it might be something to do with complexity. Uh, one thing that's special about eukarya is also the fact that a long time ago in evolution, bacteria were engulfed by eukarya and that gave rise to the mitochondria and mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell Mm -hmm. if you've ever heard that term and they they generate the energy that we need in our cells for everything to work and they are Um, they are they are the ancestors of bacteria so so they actually they actually are very highly related to bacteria so if you looked at the genome of Mitochondria. Mitochondrial genomes are actually separate from our human genomes. Um, they're inherited from your mother only. We're going through yeah. a lot. So I have a mom, a dad, and some like some like extremely old bacterial like genetic line. Yes, uh, and so so if you looked at the genome of the mitochondria, you would find more similarities to that and bacteria rather than to that and eukarya. Okay. All right. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay. We're working our way through it. I'll just take that as a thing that I need to sleep on. Um, So one interesting thing about that is there have been some ethical considerations that came, especially in the UK recently, or at least probably about a decade ago, about mitochondrial diseases and taking mitochondria from non-diseased parents if you know that the mother has a mitochondrial disease in the UK, it is legal to take the cells from a different mother and transplant the nucleus into those cells uh, so that the progeny don't have this mitochondrial disease. So it's, it's babies with three parents. You're taking- so so yeah. it's already fertilized. You're taking the nucleus of a cell, which is the important DNA essentially mm-hmm. that says who you are as a person. And you're putting, you're taking that nucleus out of a diseased larger cell mm-hmm. and moving it to a non-diseased larger cell. So the only, the only thing that stays within that larger cell is the mitochondria. So you have non-diseased mitochondria, but you have the genomes of your two parents. And so would that like, would the, would the third party with the healthy cells? So the, the only, egg, the only right? genomic information that comes from that third party is the mitochondrial DNA. Right. Who bears the child? I see no reason why healthy embryos couldn't be put back into the mother with the mitochondrial disease unless she's unable to bear a full term uh, due to her illness. But I would still point you towards an obstetrician uh, for the full details. It's called the mitochondrial transfer if your listeners are interested. Okay. (laughs) This is what happens in biology is I feel like once you start talking about cells, everybody's involved. And so I will make a dedicated effort to keep us on the virology track while I find all of these offshooting potential discussions very. Yes. Very so maybe the next focus should be on to DNA, RNA, and protein and the central well, so dogma. You didn't even talk to us about virus yet. We just talked about, talked about bacteria and oh, area right. and then uh, archaea. Which okay. So before domains. we get into DNA, RNA, and protein, the third important bit of basic information for our conversation is going to be the extra form of life slash question mark life that is viruses. So viruses are separate from bacteria, archaea, and eukarya. And some people have argued that they are a domain in in and of themselves. Some people have argued that they aren't a domain because they aren't life. And what's special about viruses. 
Huh? Virus. They're not even life. <laughs> well, it, it, it depends on how you define life. So some people have argued that they definitely are life. But it really, it, it, yes, it really depends on your definition. So what's important about viruses is that they are intracellular pathogens. So they have genomic information. So they have information that allows them to copy themselves into a separate generation. But what separates them from life is that they can't generate a new generation by themselves. So they need to co-opt the machinery of a different cell. So say a bacteria, an archaea, or a eukarya. They have to insert their genomic information into a cell, which can then replicate and make more viruses, which then leave the cell and spread to new cells to infect. So viruses then are, are more evolutionarily recent entities then because they, they exist purely because the other three domains exist. Like they're not as old then, right? <laughs> that's, that's another interesting question. It could be that viruses in a larger primordial soup, I may be pronouncing that wrong, no, that's primordial good. soup, generated themselves before cellular life and were able to re- replicate themselves with free-floating proteins in the environment. <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm sorry, this is, this is getting... Uh... I think the listeners should know that neither myself nor Owen have ingested any form of drugs prior to this discussion. We're just a bit high for on caffeine. life right now. <laughs> Owen's got a bit of caffeine. I don't really drink much coffee. This is just pure energy and mind blow off of the, the beauty that is biology. So yes. Is, okay. Uh, so, so viruses carry their genomic information in a stable form. They they can carry their information within a lipid membrane, which is the same type of membrane that holds cells and bacteria. So so bacteria, the outside membrane, the wall that separates them from the rest of the world and allows them to call themselves a form of life in and of, in and of themselves. That same type of lipid membrane is what's important to hold a virus. However, within that specific compartment, you can't actually have replication of the virus. So that's why, depending on your definition of life, the virus is not necessarily life. So just to kind of compare then, we have humans who developed from this domain we called eukarya, and eukarya is special because its DNA, its genome is wrapped inside of a nucleus. So the word eukaryote stems from the Greek eu being good and karyon meaning nut or kernel. And these refer to the presence of a nucleus. In comparison, a prokaryote, including bacteria and archaea, includes the Greek prefix pro, so before, as in before the evolution of a nucleus. Right. Okay. So, yeah, but just to compare. So we had humans, which have the genome inside the nucleus, as you're saying, which is Mm -hmm. a good thing for complexity, which we're not going to get into. Then we have bacteria where the genome is floating inside the cell, not enclosed. And then we have viruses where the genome is similarly floating inside the virus, but it doesn't have the ability to replicate within itself. So how does it replicate? It has to replicate within other cell lives. Uh, so cell it form. uses, like, what, what kind of cellular structure does it utilize that I have? If there's a virus inside my cell, what is it attaching to? So the definition of virus is an obligate intracellular pathogen. Whoa, um, what? Or... So, uh, okay, you know, uh, let's let's avoid let's avoid all of the that. Jargon in I that don't case. like any of that. None of it. <laughs> Hold on. Pause. 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 Yes. We're entering our first explain like I'm five segment. <laughs> okay. So we're going to talk about how it is that viruses introduce themselves into our cells. I am Jeremy Elman, five years old. Owen is a full adult researcher. He's going to explain to me now exactly that. Three, two, one, go. Okay. So on the outside of your cells, the cells that make up who you are, are a set of little locks. These, if you are not the five-year-old self, are also called proteins. Oh, Um, no, I'm only five right now. Okay, so these locks that are on the outside of your cells are important for cellular function. However, certain outside, let's call them viruses, Uh, little outside living beings can come and they have special keys that specifically bind to those locks. And once they bind to those locks, 
even though the locks are not meant for that key, the virus is special in that it has evolved to be able to bind to that lock and pretend that it is the key that would be normal for cellular function. So my um, body has, has the actual key and the virus, this, this thing that's now coming inside this outside entity is kind of copy, being a copycat. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's pretending to be something that it isn't so that it can enter your cell. So, so this key then binds to the lock and once it has this binding, it can then enter the cell. And once it enters the cell, it shows itself off to the cell saying, ha ha, I am not what you thought I was. <laughs> I was not the, the key that I was supposed to be. And instead I am this virus and I'm going to hijack you. So the genome of the virus, be it made of RNA or DNA, which we will get to later. I'm still fine. Um, Remember that, right? Yes. <laughs> so, so the important information of the virus that allows it to be itself and make babies then binds to other proteins within the cell that allow for replication of itself, which are not within the virus particle. And once it has completely hijacked the cellular machinery and it is done with the cell and it has made itself anew uh, many times over then it will say goodbye to the cell and it will either explode out of the cell or it will bud out in little packages to find new cells to infect it's just using me yes it is just using you mm -hmm. very very dishonest very deceitful of the virus i, I don't <laughs> like i feel like i shouldn't like this virus are all viruses bad? No, not all, all viruses, viruses want to just take advantage of me and then, and then, and then explode through my cells. <laughs> well, it, so it's important for viruses to be able to replicate themselves, to keep on living. But in certain, certain situations, viruses are actually quite useful for human beings. So the placenta would not have been the way it is in mammals were it not for a virus that is similar to HIV. So we were talking about cells, now we're talking about the placenta. This is just, a, this is just an organ of, or a, an important part of human life mm -hmm. that has been ben uh, is benefited by viruses. Right. So you can come up with other examples of very important things within the human genome and within human cell function that come from viruses. So viruses are not all bad. It just so happens that some of them are very bad. Some or most? I would say only some. Some. Okay. So it's a like small a, fraction. A small fraction of viruses are bad. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is not what I thought would be the case. <laughs> so if, you, if you've ever heard of your microbiota, so. Um, yeah. Okay. So say. I just uh, finished kindergarten. They didn't get there yet. <laughs> oh, we're still in the. Uh, <laughs> We're still in this section. I didn't, I didn't um, dismiss us, although technically if I was five, you would have, you would have lost me a while ago. So let's say this is, uh, this is back to normal life. We're back to normal. So one important example of how microorganisms are useful for life is in your gut. So a lot of bacteria are important in your gut to be able to digest your food for you, to be able to make it available for you. So certain fibers and certain other things that you eat are not necessarily immediately digestible by us, but were it not for our bacteria in our guts, we would not be able to digest. Okay. So uh, I, that's I bacteria can't, though. That's yes. I can't yeah. think of a specific virus that is helpful other than the placental example at the moment, amazing. but you can, you can look up beneficial viruses and I'm, I'm sure there are some viruses have also been suggested to be useful as for instance, an antibiotic, if all of our microorganisms are become antibiotic resistant. And viruses are also useful for any number of things that I can't necessarily think about right now, but mm -hmm. I would suggest you uh, search that up in that case. Okay. I guess, I mean, the fact that you can't think of them is exactly the reason why I had that bias. And I'm sure many listeners also thought viruses were more often bad than good just because even as somebody who's a virologist, it's even difficult for you to come up with those examples. So I, uh, I don't fault you for that, but 
I guess hum- humans often tend to, to focus on the bad. And in this case, you want to know everything we can about these bad viruses and let the good ones keep doing what they're doing. But I, mm-hmm. Actually, I, I did think of an example. Part of our genome, this, is, this might be a bit of more weed whacking, but part of our genome is actually made up of viruses from a long time ago that have integrated themselves into our genomes and have later become important parts of our genome for how it functions. So you don't need to know this term, but if you've ever heard of transposons, dear listener, those originate or important elements of transposons come from retroviruses or viruses that are similar to HIV from a long time ago. And same with important parts of the placenta that allow you to essentially have mammals. Viruses have also been extremely important for science into genetics and biology as a whole, um, including the discovery of CRISPR. They, they also play an important role in carbon cycling in the oceans. So they're, not, they're, they're useful to humans in many other ways uh, than you might immediately think. All right. Let's, let's really, I mean, we're deep into this episode. So much has already been covered, but I, I really do want to give you the opportunity to talk specifically about your research. And before we do this, I must say, instead of constantly popping into, you know, the, these, these kind of dedicated expend like I'm five segments, I really just want us to focus on explaining the next, what is going to be a very dense part as simply as possible. There will be many terms I know that will have to come up, but if there are uh, subtypes. Well, I, I think uh, it would be good for you to, to cut in and let me know if, if there is a, a word that you don't necessarily know, because I... I've been in this field long enough to have forgotten what mm-hmm. I didn't know beforehand. I will definitely do that. So instead of being an explicit explain like I'm five, just for for the foreseeable future of the th- this I'll episode, we're just gonna we're gonna imagine that I am a fetus. Okay. So I think the one other bit of information that you need to know before we get into what my research project is is the distinction between DNA, RNA, and protein. There's a central dogma of biology, which dictates that the genomic information that we have as eukarya is packaged in the cell in the form of DNA. This is, this is a molecule that is long and essentially a string of four letters that keep going. And they are packaged in this molecule, which is essentially a library for how the cell works. Love it. And so DNA itself cannot be directly turned into anything functional. DNA is such a stable molecule that a lot of the reactions in your cells, for them to work, they need something less stable or something that's more malleable in certain concentration, in certain conditions for essentially life to work. And this can be in so many different forms of variations. Say, if you're trying to make energy, you need one different form. Whereas if you're trying to, I don't know, help with replication of genomic information, then you have to be of of a different form. And DNA itself is not able to take on these different forms. A second important molecule in the cell is RNA. So DNA and RNA, you'll notice from the name itself, are quite similar. And it's just, uh, there's a a little sugar molecule associated with RNA that is slightly different from DNA, but you can think of them as essentially quite similar. So DNA itself is packaged in letters of A's, T's, G's, and C's. And these are the base letters that carry your genomic information. And then RNA is an important molecule that can combine to DNA or can be synthesized by specific effector molecules such that it copies the information from DNA and turns it into a functional molecule. Sorry, is, is RNA itself functional or is RNA kind of like the bridging the gap between this, this stable non-functional DNA and something else? So RNA was initially thought of as only bridging the gap. So mRNA, which everyone will, or you probably will have heard about this if you've taken an introductory biology class, Messenger RNA or mRNA is RNA that takes information from DNA from the genome and can carry it outside of the nucleus and then can be translated from this language of A's, T's, G's, and C's into proteins. And proteins are the very important malleable 
form of essentially effector molecule in the cell. So if the cell needs something to be able to replicate DNA, or if, if it needs some kind of effector to be able to do something within the cell, essentially be it anything, be it helping with packaging, be it assigning different packages to different smaller compartments within the cell. Most of these effector functions needed in the cell that ultimately, ultimately determine whether a cell acts like a brain cell, a muscle cell, an immune cell, or whatever, are performed by, or most often by proteins or modified proteins. So proteins are these very diverse and important molecules within the cell that allow us to function. So the central dogma of molecular biology is that DNA gets copied into RNA, which can then be translated into protein, which will then dictate a function within the cell. Okay. Now, RNA themselves, being a slightly less stable molecule than DNA, actually do have their own functions in and of themselves, which is something that I'm currently using for study. But yes, the central dogma is an important part of how you understand uh, cellular biology. Which is that DNA gets turned into RNA, which gets turned into proteins, which are the massively functional unit in the cell. Yes. Cool. All right. Now that we so have... listeners, are you on board? <laughs> Clap, snap, say something. I'm going to assume you're on board. Yeah. <laughs> Text me at 911. <laughs> so now that we have the central dogma, we can get into RNA interference. So RNA interference is a special cellular function performed by RNA rather than proteins, wherein short, around 20 letter long RNA molecules can bind through almost perfect complementarity to messenger RNAs or other RNAs within the cell. And in binding to these messenger RNAs, they can downregulate. And this regulation by these short or what we can call micro RNAs can fine tune the expression of the messenger RNA in question, ultimately defining how the cell functions. Okay, so great. We have our central dogma, right? Mm -hmm. Which is this kind of DNA to RNA to protein. And now we have this, this additional element, the micro RNA, that's kind of mm -hmm. reducing the amount of a specific protein through this interaction. Mm -hmm. So we're ready. We're ready. We're ready. We're ready. Okay. We're ready. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guess we can get into my project associated with HIV with a very brief introduction to HIV. So HIV is a virus that infects human blood cells, and the human blood cells that, it's, it, that it infects are the white blood cells, so the, the cells that are important for your immune system. Mm -hmm. So what's important for HIV is the reason why it kills so many people is that when HIV kills all of your white blood cells or your, your T cells, if you've ever heard that term, then you are no longer able to fight a normal pathogen that you would very easily be able to stop. So say you had the common cold. If you have all of your immune system working normally, you should be able to fight that off in, with no problem. Whereas if you have HIV, which is killing all of your white blood cells, then you're going to be a lot less able to fight off this common cold. And same with fighting off cancer, same with fighting off tuberculosis or other bacterial infections. If you have HIV, it allows secondary infections to jump in and devastate you. So a lot of the people who die from AIDS, which is acquired immune deficiency syndrome, so a deficiency in your immune system, a lot of people who die from AIDS, it's not because of HIV itself. It's because of a secondary infection that comes in and kills them, say cancer, Carposi sarcoma. Um, Can HIV kill you, though, just on its own? Or would you actually need to have some external pathogen come in and that and this kind of depleted immune system would then lead to your ultimate demise? Well, you, you can live without an immune system so long as you live in a bubble. Okay. But if you step outside of that bubble and you get a 
a normal infection, like a really simple infection, you can die. Okay. So HIV came from chimpanzees in Africa in the early 1900s, and then it spread through the population, progressively building up mutations that helped it survive in humans, such that by 1980, the virus could easily infect humans and devastate their immune systems, beginning the modern AIDS pandemic that's since been going for 30, uh, 40 plus years. So that's like modern HIV, basically. Over, over 75 years, it developed into the, the, what I assume is the HIV we have today? Yes. So from the 1980s until now, there have been some important developments uh, wherein new drugs were developed in the mid-1990s that were able to really tamp down the death rate. So the peak of deaths, I think, was around 2006, 2005, 2006, where the most amount of people were dying from HIV. And since then, the number of deaths have gone way down. So the AIDS, you could call pandemic still. Some people are still arguing that it's called the, uh, that HIV AIDS is a pandemic. But the HIV AIDS global epidemic is waning, though it still exists. And there are upwards of 38 million people living with HIV in their bodies currently. So what makes HIV special compared to other viruses that affect us, including SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19? What makes HIV special is that it is able to integrate itself within our genome. So HIV is a virus that can take its genomic material and not only replicate itself within the cell, it can integrate into our genome. And then when your cell replicates itself, it, it carries a copy of that genome. Other viruses don't do that. I thought from what we discussed earlier, the virus kind of injects its genome into our cells. It injects it its genome into its, our cells and replicates. Whereas with HIV, it injects its genome into our cells and then that genome can integrate into our genome. Oh, it's like a next level integration, like double, yes. not double Asian, but like hyper undercover agent. Mm -hmm. So this is a rare type of, or a special type of virus called a retrovirus, being that it is able to go against the central dogma of molecular biology in taking its RNA genome, turning it into DNA, and then integrating its DNA into the human genome. <laughs> oh um, my goodness uh, so, so that's that's what interests me so much about hiv is that it's this special type of virus that is a retrovirus viruses um, we already said were special because we don't even know if, if they can even consider them life because mm -hmm. they don't have this ability to self-propagate biology is <laughs> wait, 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 complex. Wait. i'm just trying to kind of build this picture for myself so then so viruses are already special now we have a special type of virus that is able to completely subvert the central dogma of biology. What is going on? Everything, everything that I thought I knew is a lie. This is, this is, this is absolutely mind blowing. Okay. So I'm happy to hear. <laughs> yeah, this is great. This is, this is wonderful stuff. I guess I can get into my project now that we know what HIV is. Absolutely. Right. So what I was going to ask is, uh, before I just wanted you to finish your point, I was going to ask, as you said, in the 1990s, we started to see this decline in numbers of new cases mm -hmm. or deaths. So in the 1990s, there was a decline in cases and a subsequent decline in associated deaths following peak in 2005, 2006. Um, and this decline corresponded to doctors figuring out highly effective drug combinations and rolling out delivery of these treatments worldwide. So these treatments can now stop HIV from replicating, but the problem is that HIV is still in the body because it's a special type of virus that integrates into the genome. Um, so with extremely rare exceptions, HIV-infected individuals need to keep taking drug combinations that can be expensive and have side effects for the rest of their lives. Uh, so it's a lifelong infection that can reactivate the moment or uh, within a, a couple weeks of the moment that you stop taking these drugs. So in other words, there's no cure to HIV. And what I'm working on is, is a cure to HIV. Now, there are, there are two general strategies for this. One would be to shock the HIV reservoir 
which you can imagine as hiding away from the immune system by not expressing anything recognizable about the virus into expressing HIV. So that can then stimulate the immune system into recognizing and killing all the cells that are expressing this HIV. So these, these shock and kill strategies, however, have never actually been able to significantly reduce the size of the reservoir. And you can imagine it would be quite scary to reactivate HIV in your body if you've spent all these years taking drugs to keep it sleeping. On the other hand, what I'm hoping to do is to take what we know about what mechanisms HIV uses to hide away in these reservoirs in the first place, and then improve upon this silencing such that even when you aren't taking drugs, all of the HIV in your body is already in deep hibernation so that you don't have to worry about it ever waking up again. So this is known as a block and lock strategy for a cure, but it wouldn't be considered a sterilizing cure. It wouldn't completely eliminate HIV from your body. So this, it almost sounds like you're, you're kind of turning these infected cells into like dormant volcanoes where, you know, when we have a dormant volcano that hasn't erupted for 10,000 years, we can assume that it's not really going to erupt anytime soon. And so we don't need to worry about it, you know, and let's say, you know, we're talking about the human lifespan, mm -hmm. 50 to 100 years, you will, you will die from other causes is what you're implying. Yeah. So this, this kind of is similar to the strategy that designed all of the drugs that we have in use today, where you're trying to stop HIV from replicating within cells. But what we're searching for, for a functional cure is to seriously tamp it down using our understanding of HIV biology within the cell. Um, so what I'm currently working on is first finding microRNAs within the cell, which is a callback to earlier, finding microRNAs within the cell that are associated with latency or the form of the HIV within your genome that does not replicate. So there are, there are cells that are latent and not expressing virus, whereas there are cells that are active that are expressing viruses. What I'm tr uh, trying to figure out is the collection of microRNAs that are present within the cell that are associated with a latent infection as opposed to an active infection. And once we have the microRNAs that we know are associated with latency or reservoir not, uh, not being active, then we can essentially take these same small RNAs, or the, the idea is to take the same small RNAs and then put them into cells that have HIV in them so that we, we're hoping to make those cells look more similar to cells that aren't expressing HIV and that won't express HIV. Oh, okay. So there's a higher barrier to being able to even replicate HIV within the cell. So you're saying there are specific microRNA that are kind of markers of a latent version of the virus. And then you can take those markers and, and show it to the non-latent version. Be like, hey, here, take a look at what the latent virus is doing. Yeah, we want to do that, right? And then you kind of push the virus towards latency, like force it into latency. Because you said it's block and lock, right? Yeah, block and lock. So, uh, so what we're uh, that's that's very similar to what I'm trying to do. The the only thing is we're not trying to show it to active cells, or not necessarily trying to show it to active cells. We're trying to show those microRNAs that we know are associated with latency, and put them into cells that are already latent, so that they have even more markers of latency, so that the the barriers to going out of latency are increased, if that makes any sense. Can you say it one more time? So, uh, so what we're trying to do is taking the markers that are associated with latency and not necessarily putting them into active cells to bring them towards latency. What we're trying to do is take latent cells that are already latent and make them even more latent by giving them more markers that are associated with latency because some there's there's a variation in cells of how many markers there are associated with latency i actually love this because it's kind of like fighting fire with fire let me explain viruses trick your cells into thinking that they are the key that it wants to have unlock it and so now you're tricking the virus 
into a deeper level of latency by showing it these microRNAs that normally indicate that it should be latent. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> so, so, so that's what I'm studying. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to figure out the specific microRNA profiles that are in latent cells and introduce those into already latent cells and then try reactivating those cells and see which, which cells that are reactivated are more or less reactivated. So the less reactivated cells with conditions that would reactivate HIV normally, if they're less reactivated when they're in the presence of these markers of latency that we've introduced, then we can know that those markers of latency are probably useful for acting as, a, as an additional barrier to reversal from latency. Got it. You're kind of just like turning down the volume on activity mm-hmm. with, these, with these microRNA. Yeah. And so microRNAs are things that are already present in the cell. And we've also looked into not only microRNAs, but we're also looking into short interfering RNAs, which for our purposes are essentially microRNAs that we can design ourselves that don't necessarily have to be already existing within cells. So we can take information that we know about microRNAs that are associated with latency and then we can design new iterations of these molecules to be even better at improving latency. That makes total sense. You said it's only really 20, 20 letters, right? So you mm-hmm. can kind of switch a letter here and there, and you can even string, I presume you can string together 20 different kind of elements or you know, 20 different pieces together to create these, these strings, right? As opposed to dealing with an entire strand of RNA, like however long, you know, thousands and thousands of letters long. Yeah. So, so the idea is not to take a single microRNA and put it into cells. The, the idea is if we were to get towards later stages of actually drug development, these microRNAs would be, um, or short interfering RNAs, siRNAs, would be used in combination and then maybe put into cells to be expressed all the time so that you have a combination always being expressed and not having to take drugs uh, regularly. That's very cool. Is yeah, so that's, like, uh, that's this is the cutting good... edge, basically. Well, <laughs> I'd say so. So uh, ultimately, what I find so interesting and special about short interfering RNAs or siRNAs and other functional RNAs being used in therapies is that they can be used to target essentially any expressed molecule in the cell, so any non-coding RNA, with very good hybridization, which is a great improvement over most current small molecule drugs that have essentially a lock and key type interaction with their targets in the cell. So following their first FDA approval just two years ago, these being siRNA treatments, I think that therapies using siRNAs and also microRNAs have a, have a huge potential for what I'm working on, which is HIV, but also for the field in general. I want to start wrapping up this episode. Sure. We've, we've covered a tremendous amount of information. Thank you so much for giving us all of this juicy knowledge. This is why we're here, Owen. So really appreciate it. From the biological background in part one to diving into the research, talking about HIV and the you know, me- more mechanisms of viruses. Absolutely fascinating. To kind of round things off, I have a, a few more questions. One, just pure curiosity based on some of the readings you had me do before this episode. In one of the papers you had me read, there was mention of somebody called the Berlin patient. I would love to just hear a bit about who this is and what the implications are for your research. Absolutely. Yeah. So two big breakthroughs or breakthrough events in the HIV world were the Berlin patient in 2007-2008 and the London patient in 2018, I might be getting the dates not exactly correct, who both used to have HIV. Now, these two patients were both suffering from massive immune cell death and associated cancers, but were ultimately given a special type of bone marrow transplant. And these transplants took stem cells from people who have a rare mutation in CCR5, 
which can be seen as the little locks that HIV latches onto when it enters the cell, meaning that the cells given in these transplants were not accessible to the virus. And these are very risky transplant procedures and require a donor with a mutation in the right place, a match in immune cell markers that would prevent transplant rejection and a a set of HIV specialists and surgeons who are properly trained to do the transplant. So it'd be very difficult to really roll out to a larger population. Okay, so these are more like outlier patients than examples that we can look to for current research and development. I mean, mm-hmm. can, we, can we go out and take blood from a million people and maybe one, a fraction of a percent of those people will be these perfect donors and then we can kind of have them in some kind of donation bank? So uh, some people have been looking into that. Another thing, uh, another treatment that I think is somewhat more viable um, that people have looked into is similar to what I've done using microRNAs or siRNAs to knock down the same protein, lock the lock protein in cells. So you can take cells out of the bodies of the people who are infected. You can modify them such that they no longer have this protein on their cell membrane. And then you can reintroduce the cells back into the infected patient. And hopefully the reservoir of HIV that still exists within their bodies is not able to infect these new cells that no longer have the lock for which HIV is the key to. Right. Okay, fair enough. I just wanted to make sure that I was aware of what the Berlin patient and London patient were in terms of the actual mm-hmm. therapy that they were um, receiving. Are they both I'll, alive? I'll, uh, yeah, they're, uh, they're both alive. The Berlin patient is called Timothy Brown. He has, he's been do- doing a lot of advocacy since his case was made public. Mm-hmm. And the more recent London patient, who I, I, I might botch his name, I think is called Alejandro Castillejo, but mm-hmm. I, could, I, could, I could be wrong on that. He actually made his announcement, uh, or he divulged his identity on, I think it was March 9th uh, mm-hmm. this year, which was two days before the WHO made their announcement that COVID-19 was a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I think were, were it not for the coronavirus, this story of the, the, two, the two patients who have essentially overcome HIV through special treatments would have been a lot better known within the world. Mm-hmm. Timing. Uh, yeah, uh, somewhat unfortunate timing. But I, uh, it's, it's nice to hear. Uh, I have heard a few interviews with the London patient now. All righty. So that will, that will conclude the, um, the HIV discussion, research discussion portion of today's episode. We're, we're, we're very rapidly nearing the finish. There are usually two questions that I end with. And so we'll just end with those two questions. Because why not? Because we're here and we're doing it. The first question is, how do you, Owen Dunkley, strike your own work-life balance as someone who I know is knee-deep in research, which, as I now know, is extremely interesting, groundbreaking, fascinating stuff. What do you do in your free time? How do you, uh, how do you take care of yourself, mental health, physical health? How do you keep that nice balance? What's the secret? Um, uh, well, I do try to do a decent amount of exercise. I'm very lucky in having a healthy body and, uh, being able to cycle very regularly, especially during the summer. I also very much enjoy playing guitar every now and then to ease the mind. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, uh, so exercise, music, and also lots of baking and cooking. So those those are my my three big uh, things that keep me keep me going, keep me steady. But also learning about uh, different things that are outside of my field. I feel like I I often do get into the weeds of what I'm doing, and I go I I often do deep dives into the research, and sometimes it's nice to kind of take my head out of the grass, stand up and look at say advancements in different fields of science and and other things that interest me. So reading right. in different fields, say. Okay, so you kind of straddled the line there. You have, you have these purely creative and non-academic pursuits, and you also have just straight up academic pursuits that are more, you know, just for your own personal interest outside of your mm-hmm. field. Yeah, uh, broadening my, 
field of knowledge, I'd say. All right. Lovely stuff. So just being involved in, in things outside of your research that kind of helps keep that balance for you. There's no, there's no, uh, no science behind it. No, no specific science behind what I'm learning outside of the lab. Just lots of, lots of reading, lots of, uh, listening to podcasts. Keeping the mind sharp. Keeping the mind sharp. Yeah. Nice. And for our final question, which you might know if you've listened to a couple episodes, I know you have checked out a couple in the past. So you might know, do you know what the final question is? Three things, or maybe it's one thing that uh, describes me inside the lab and then some number of descriptors uh, for me outside of the lab and how they are similar or different. Exactly. Go, go for it. Answer that question. <laughs> See, I was, I was not looking forward to this question, so I did actually write down my answers ahead of time. Whoa, okay, amazing. So my, my descriptions in the lab, I would say, would be broadly interested driven and uh, rational. So if, if there's ever a, ever something that happens within the lab that might throw me off or might, might seem unintuitive, I take a rational approach and try to work through all of the possibilities of what could be the issue. And outside of the lab, I would say all of the above. <laughs> so broadly interested, driven and rational, but also in my musical and other such res- uh, pursuits, uh, being a bit of a perfectionist or aesthetic. So, yeah. And that presumably factors into your uh, amateur photography. Yes. Do yes. you often stand yes, staring at an does. object or a subject and you just, you just don't take a photo for like 30 minutes because you're trying to figure out the perfect angle, the perfect lighting, the perfect everything? Well, thanks to modern digital technology for photography, <laughs> I can take many photos. Um, mm, right. But I do, I do often limit the number of photos I end up taking and I picture what I would like to take ahead of time. And I set the camera to the appropriate settings that I think would be perfect for the shot. And maybe I'll take three or four shots of a given subject. And yeah, uh, maybe off, uh, often my subjects are not necessarily a person, but an object within a scene that corresponds to a specific feeling. Okay. I'd be happy to be an object in a specific scene that evokes a specific feeling if you happen to have your camera on hand <laughs> at some point in time. So <laughs> that'll be nice. We, we could we could maybe chat about that off air shortly or in just a moment. So I think this is going to be the end of what will be, I guess, the first time we have you on the podcast because I do want to have you back to discuss CRISPR and COVID, the two big C's of our time. I'm sure there are other big C's. I'm just being biased right now uh, based on the current discussion. So with that, I want to thank you again for your seemingly endless dispensable knowledge on various topics in biology, virology, and uh, this has been absolutely eye-opening for me. So as the listeners, I hope you enjoyed Owen part one. Until next Thanks time. for having me. This was really enjoyable. Yeah, awesome. This is, this is absolutely great. Always a pleasure, Owen. So thank you very much and have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.